Just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Netter. Just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello, Ian, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Right, so we're going to get straight into it, but we're just going to start off with a gentle introductory question. So before we start to talk about um, the book, can you just give us a little bit of information about you and how you came to put this book together? Okay, so um, I was got into teaching a long time ago. Um, I was a French teacher, but I went into teaching because I wanted to work with young people around thinking skills, really, and motivation and creativity and learning. And um, from that starting point grew the organisation that I've headed now for 27 years, Independent Thinking. Um, and so, um, and we're a platform for great educators to share good practice, whether that's leadership, whether that's curriculum design, whether that's well-being increasingly these days. Um, so, so we're known for that sort of teaching and learning and leadership and conferences and inset and work with students and, 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 and that range of uh, I more traditional school support. But from my own personal journey, if you like, I think that's the phrase people use these days, um, I found myself increasingly looking for independent thinking to, to, to use it as a platform for addressing some of the things that, especially in English education, not necessarily Wales and Scotland or around the world, but in English education have been narrowed down and out of the curriculum. And under the hood with independent thinking, um, we have what I call my six voices. So where education overlaps with... Um, the environment, with inclusion, with well-being, with the arts, and with society, and where all of those things overlap with each other. And, and part of that drive grew out of, and the book, which we're going to talk about in this session, The Working Class, grew out of suddenly finding myself living and working in Chile. And this was about, this has been about 10 years ago. Um, my wife is originally from Chile. She grew up um, at the wrong end, let's say in the wrong end of town, on the receiving end of uh, the, the dictatorship and not, not in a good way. Um, and I suddenly realized that education and society and politics with a small p and inclusion and rights and all of those things, you can't, you can't separate them. And any discussion about the curriculum, about the nature of teaching, about, about pedagogy, about the purpose of education has to have an angle that's about the politics of a country and the society that it's involved in, the citizenship that's there and the, the rights and responsibilities and the equality or otherwise of, of, of the country. And my eyes sort of re were really open to that through the people that I met um, uh, in Chile and then the conversations that I had and then the reading that I started doing. And and one of the things that I that I became aware of, and, and it's easy, it's really easy to have the narrative when the narrative is easy, when the narrative is raising standards or discipline or behavior or um, PISA. They're really easy headlines to put on the front of the Daily Mail, and they make the situation seem like the answers are going to be easy as well. But as soon as you start unpicking it and realize the richness and the complexity and the depth of, of, of uh, areas that you need to understand in order to understand why we have the curriculum we have and why we have the pedagogies that are foisted upon us, um, it, it, becomes a very, it becomes a much more difficult sort of headline to grab. And, and what I wanted to do with the book, The Working Class, 
is and it's and it's it's sort of literally on the front you know poverty education and alternative voices i wanted to change the narrative around what it is to be poor what it is to work with children from poorer backgrounds and these narratives are really really important and 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 the narratives are the things we don't think about these these sort of mental models that we have uh, i'm aware phil you said a short a short uh, response to this but but this is going to be a long one because it's right at the heart of why i wrote the book and um, the mental models that we have, where do they come from? And these mental models are the things that we don't think about. The, the you know, we might say, um, you know, getting loads of qualifications is a good thing. There's no need to have a discussion about that. It's a good thing. Um, you know, uh, having a good job and getting a mortgage and getting a nice family. We don't need to have a conversation about what, about that. That's a good thing. Um, social mobility. We don't need to have a conversation about that. That's a good thing. Um, every child matters. No child left behind. Who, who can argue with that? So you, you realize that these mental models that, that, that we work with, that are, well, this is how the world is, may not be the things that are moving society forward and maybe the things that are, the, the things that are, that are holding us back. And maybe we need to not only challenge the narratives that are there and where they come from, are they coming from the media? Are they coming from the front page of the Daily Mail? Are they coming through Facebook? If they're coming through Facebook, how are they getting there and who's putting them there? Um, and, and so we need to challenge the mental models that exist, social mobility, the feckless poor, it's their own fault. If they can afford flat screen televisions and they can afford to feed their children, all of those sorts of things that we hear that are out there, um, as well as then, so we challenge those as well as starting to put forward some alternative narratives of our own that allow for a more nuanced and more complex and more understanding and more caring, can I say, um, approach to understanding all sorts of issues with the world. But in this particular instance, how to um, how to get more out of young people from a poorer background within an education system, um, and 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 not just uh, perpetuate the gap. And there's another one. We must close the gap. Let's interrogate that just a little bit more. So the book is, yeah, alternative poverty education, alternative voices. Let's let's re-examine the narratives. Let's start looking a little bit deeper. Let's start looking at the complexities. Let's take the research. Let's take the lived experience. Let's take a whole wide range of voices across a whole the whole width of the of of the um, the area that we're looking at, and let's put them all together and see what happens. And then, and, and this is my last point, Phil. Honest, and not put anything out there to say you're wrong or you should be doing this or you must be doing that the, the whole nature of as you can tell by the name of the company independent thinking is it's we're trying to get people to think think for themselves think differently think deeply we're not here to tell anybody this is what you must do or what you're doing is wrong but we are trying to reinforce all the time that there there is another way there are new ways of thinking about it and if it's and the evidence in, clo- in terms of closing the gap is it ain't closing and it's, and it's, and it's getting worse in certain places, as well as all the other stuff that's going on as a result of trying to close this gap um, outside of education. Um, that you know, There is another way. There are other ways of, of looking at things. And let's together collaboratively, whether you're a traditional person in the education, whether you're a, 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 you know, a, a modernist within education, whatever, whatever your starting point, let's get together. Let's look at the information that's there in a more complex and nuanced way. And let's start looking at things differently from what we're doing in order to get a different result. Does that, Phil, answer 
the question in seven minutes? I think that's the best first answer I've ever had. And I've done 132 podcasts, Ian. So I think that that's some <laughs> some achievement. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so let's get into the first question then, Ian, if we may. And the first question is going to be, we're going to talk about behavior. So listeners will know that uh, I am passionate about behavior, being involved in it on a, on a daily basis uh, in a school. And obviously, this is why I picked up your book in the first place, Ian. You know, in a school where we've got 74% pupil premium, working in the heart and the center of Blackpool so in terms of you know the kind of voices that you've had on this book talking about behavior of people that you know I've been involved with for various different projects so I was really keen to read the book but getting to the question um, does no excuses for all mean no chance for some the the evidence seems to apply and again I talk about empirical and also about the research evidence from this country and elsewhere would seem to imply that 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 is the case or it certainly can be the case you, we've, we've, and I'm aware that behaviour is a hugely controversial issue, and I'm aware that there are loud, strong, angry voices on on both sides of of whatever continuum we're working with, or division maybe is better the word we're working with in places like like Twitter. Um, so I, I I am aware of that, and I'm, some people will uh, will will be shouting at their speakers as I say this, but I. They're, they're, there is this, so the research empirical evidence that suggests that when we have the zero tolerance, the the no excuses culture, it makes sure that certain young people will respond, and there are lots of people who won't respond, and they and that lack of response leads to whether that's the booths, the exclusion, the detentions, the the um, the, the the exclusion PX. I haven't heard the term PX until yesterday. The permanent exclusions. Um, and I mean, the, the no excuses stuff came over from the states, um, and even and I'm going to refer uh, because it's such a massive book. Um, I'm going to refer to um, uh, some of the stuff from the book. So if I sort of read a little bit, as if I can find it, um, I probably won't be able to find it. Um, um, that they're saying that it, when you when you have this no excuses, this serotonin, this rigid behavior system, and it came from um, to do with sort of drugs and, and guns in, and knives in school, which is which is fair enough. That's not what we're talking about on the whole is not what we're talking about here in this country when we're talking about zero tolerance. We're talking about more behavioral sorts of issues. Um, but that, that rigidity means that, um, that you don't have within the teacher's armory the flexibility needed to be able to deal with each individual situation as it comes along. And maybe maybe an individu- individual situation as it comes along needs dealing with in a more caring, relational way than you you have committed X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I need to impose A, B, and C on you, and we'll follow that through and see and see where we go. And and let's say apart from the research, um, I, I, within independent thinking, we have what I call a lighthouse associate. So independent thinking works by finding people who are doing great stuff in schools, day in day out. A bit like you described, Phil, um, uh, and and. Are doing it in a way that is interesting, that is curious, that is that puts the child at the centre, not the results, not the data, not the way the school looks, not Ofsted, not the 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 how how good it makes the the chief exec look, or any of those sorts of issues. It puts the child front and centre of, of what goes on in schools. So I can point to people working in incredibly challenging environments who are working in such a way that 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 zero tolerance isn't the thing that they're employing because it just wouldn't work for them 
or and and the no excuses thing they are working at a more relational level and looking beyond the the child's forgotten the pencil or the child just sworn at me on the school gates um and and by those sorts of people i can refer to people like um dave whittaker um um, uh, he was just did a webinar for us yesterday about his kindness principle. I'll come back to kindness in a little while. Um, but he's been the head of uh, special schools in and around, well, around Barnsley is where he started, but he's ended up sort of growing an accidental empire of, of special schools, PRUs and APs. But with kindness, with relational practice, with restorative practice, right at the heart of what he does. And and it's controversial, weirdly. Um, the, the Guardian did an article about him a while back, and they talked about battering kids with kindness and talks about kindness and the amount of stick he got on social media by talking about kindness. I think Phil, uh, Vic Goddard, another one of our associates, another one talking about, um, about the use of kindness, about what they call unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard. That's right at the heart of Dave's Dave's work and Phil and uh, um, uh, and Vic's work as well, and so many other teachers who have, have and heads who have learned and listened, who learned from them and listened to them. That whatever you do, I, I I might not like it. I might discipline you. We might address it. We will address it. But I will never lose the condition, the, the regard that I have for you as a human being, as somebody with potential, as somebody who can learn and is going to learn, and is somebody who is who is who is lovable. Um, Dave talks about the, the the you know the girl who he would stand on the gates every day and every day for a year. This girl would come in and tell him to f off. Firstly, hello, whatever the name was, and she says f off for a year. And then suddenly one day she says, all right, sir. And he knows he's made progress and he could have kicked her out and who knows where she'd be now, but it took him a year to make that sort of progress. And that sort of progress was driven by a condition of positive regard, by understanding, by, by, by kindness, by, by love, <laughs> the L word. Um, I had a conversation with a head teacher from, um, I think he was Norfolk way, but I think he's moved now to the Northwest, I think. And he, some of his, uh, in terms of value added and, and um, his progress eight was some of the best scores, certainly in the county, some of the best, were the best in the county and were some of the best in the country. Um, and he said that some of his biggest progress, his biggest gains were made in children with special needs, children who were at risk, children who were troublesome in air quotes. Um, and I said, well, what do you put that down to? And he said, love. And and you can't argue with that. And um, another of our associates, um, Dr. Andrew Curran, a consultant pediatric neurologist until recently, Alder Hay Children's Hospital is now, now retired to do more work uh, within education. Um, and if you look at his book, the little book of big stuff about the brain, sort of uh, for trying to make teachers understand some of the basics about the brain beyond the, the 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 cognitive science stuff about what you need in order to learn. So the bigger stuff than that around the emotional aspects of the brain and what our brain needs to flourish and to to grow and to be healthy and to feel connected and to be able to make relationships and sustain relationships. And and he describes the the the, the four characteristics that we need in order to flourish in the classroom about understanding and empathy and self esteem. And he says, you know, you might know that as love if you love that child. And that child's brain feels and experiences love. That child will develop. Um, that child's brain will develop in a, in a in a healthy, balanced way, which will enable that child to love. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. Um, and if that child, sorry, to learn as well as love. And if we're developing their brains in such a way that they can learn, then then we're doing the job in the classroom anyway. 
And there's research from, I think it's from um, Southampton University from a few years ago. And by the way, anything I talk about, if anybody wants to make contact with me, and I know, Phil, you'll sort of give contact details out at the end, um, please feel free. I can point you in the direction of the research or the people or the, or, 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 the, or the papers or any of it. But I think it was Southampton University was saying, if you get children emotionally intelligent, get, their, get that balanced, then here's the evidence, here's the proof that the, that, that the grades go up. So the idea that we need to get rid of children in order to have a decent education system um, is it's not an intelligent way of thinking, I don't think. And by intelligent, I mean, let's get our brains together and work out a system whereby, yes, those who, 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 those who are disruptive, we can address. We don't want disruptions in the classroom at any level, but not in a way that just kicks kids out because they don't fit the mold or because we haven't listened to their needs. I know there's been a big debate um, again on Twitter about you know um, behavior as an unmet need and, it, and it, it divides people in a very in a very angry way. But I certainly and you could probably tell would fall down on the side of things. Being, and I've said this right from when I was a teacher that learning is that behavior is a it's a symptom. It's a symptom of something. Now when I'm you know when I'm teaching is I was a French teacher in Northampton. You know maybe their misbehavior was a symptom of the fact that they could see no point for learning French in Northampton or maybe they were bored or maybe I hadn't taken the time to connect with them. The unmet need doesn't have to be always something that's traumatic or 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 um, uh, cataclysmic in their lives. It might be just that I just haven't taken the time. I, I, I looked at them in a dodgy way when they walked through the door and, and I was the fifth person to do that and they, they've, they've, they've had enough. But if we intelligently and professionally take behavior as a as telling us something, then then we can have a far more nuanced conversation a far more inclusive conversation than that they're bad they're wrong they're doing it uh, we need to we, we we need to get get rid really again phil it, it's such a it's a while since i wrote the book it's a thick book there's so much in there um hopefully this is making sense does that does that answer your question or can we not remember what the question was it was a while of, ago of now. course i can remember what the question was and, I, <laughs> and i'm writing things down and i'm thinking about it and I, I mean i'm just trying to think how i can address this in terms of an answer so you know i've been on a huge journey so people who've listened to the podcast since day one you know when i was working in in different schools in this slightly different context uh, in a different role will have seen the movement in my thinking around behavior to something and you know you mentioned dave whittaker there you know, I've been lucky enough to work closely with Dave Whitaker through the work that he's done in Blackpool over the last 18 months and two years. And it's hard to underestimate in the, the impact that's had on the schools. And I'm talking about all the schools, not just our school, but also on some of us as, as professionals. And, you know, that unconditional positive regard, which, you know, perhaps previously and people will know that I would have been described as hugely traditional in some of my uh, viewpoints re regarding behavior. And I'm not saying that I've moved fully away, away from some of those thoughts, but no, that, that's fair enough, but the unconditional positive regard and that, that example um, at the school gate. And I can think of any number of examples of similar things where, you know, 18 months into a job now, I'm seeing huge movements with, you know, relationships and, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily allowing things to go or dropping standards. We're just meeting the pupils maybe where they are sometimes and, you know, working closely on those relationships. But you mentioned about kicking students out and, and the difficulties around debates about that. And, and Dave's done a lot of work to try and help us with that. So it leads into my next question really, which is, um, why shouldn't listeners trust a school that excludes more than it includes? Um, I mean, there's been the whole off-rolling issue, which uh, I think the last time I sort of looked into it, they are, uh, you know, the Ofsted and the DFE are trying to sort of get a grip on it. But I know it was, I know it was rife, and I know, you know, if I mentioned the schools or the academy chains that were involved in it, I would, um, I'd probably have lawyers chasing after me. Um, and, and I know it's something that Dave Whitaker was looking at and was trying to, and was helping the DFE think about it as well. But if you, and I don't blame the schools. 
you've got a you've got a system whereby they are praised and rewarded for hitting certain targets and punished and penalized sacked for not hitting those targets so in any area of working life if you work in that narrow um behavioristic way what happens is people cheat it's natural you 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 see it in in the health service you know you set targets for waiting lists waiting times so you find a way around it you 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 say yeah everybody comes in the scene straight away and then they wait for 3 hours on a trolley but we've hit the target it's just natural so a bit more understanding of human nature of psychology of behavioral change um from the top would really go a long way in supporting those head teachers and those schools and those academy chains that they don't want to operate that way but if they don't they'll they'll be they'll be kicked out they'll lose their franchise they'll lose their job and there are and this is another thing that uh, again we doesn't get mentioned but I, I so many stories I've come across of head teachers who try to speak out who then suddenly are no longer in a job literally overnight with a non-disclosure clause quite often but not always with a lump of money to keep quiet and I've met more than a few and 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 heard of more than a few uh, uh, of those sorts of examples as well so we've got this this top down toxic um command and control it's all about the rewards it's all about the data culture so of course people are going to play into that to, to 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 keep to keep a job and that gets passed down and down and down um and until you you know end up with the children and then i mean we did a well-being webinar last week and it was interesting one of the things that came through was this sense of and and think about the exter- the um, po- um, unconditional positive regard. This sense of I'm only good if somebody says I'm good. And one of our associates talking about well-being was doing some coaching, and she had a uh, one of her coaches who was saying, Look, "I can't really concentrate because you know Ofsted are in, and, I, and I'm about to get some sort of feedback, and you know I I, I want to know if I'm any good." So we've, we, all the way, whether it's the schools, whether it's the heads, whether it's the teachers, whether it's the kids, it's always I'm I'm good because somebody else, or I'm crap because somebody else. And we know that goes against um, what's called the internal locus of control. Some of my early work was around motivation and the work of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi about having this internal locus of control, this sense of being in control of your life. But if it's constantly about other people determining whether we're good enough and then deciding maybe we're not. I mean, teachers are bad enough anyway. We, you know, we do the parents' evening and... and, and 99% of the parents say nice things and one has a bit of a moan and that's the one we go home and hit the gin and tonic about yeah. um I mean, we're bad you know we're har- harshest critics critics anyway let alone when when the whole system is set up to 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 undermine us and and maybe there are political reasons why if you if you have a weakened teacher system then you can as a politician do whatever you like with education and one of the things that finland for example did right in the early stages of their rise to international stardom as educators and pisa was just a byproduct they didn't aim for pisa um one of the first things they did was realize they had to build trust between the government the people and the teaching profession that was their starting point for their 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 rise to like i say to international education stardom so um so we've got a system that does force exclusions and then who are the people on the receiving end of the exclusions and again the data is in the book i could go to it if i could find it but it, it'll be there somewhere but it is people from poorer backgrounds it is people from special needs backgrounds it is people from it is black caribbean boys it is people from um the traveler community it's all of those people who don't fit this and i know you're going to talk about middle classification who don't fit this model 
that has been deemed, remember I talked about mental models, as, as this is what we are producing as a good student. Lots of good grades. They talk nicely. They've got good um, uh, um, understanding of, of theatre and, and you know, they'll, they know couscous from Semolina um, and these people will get to university and they'll go far. And, and for some people, they will go far and that's fine. But there are a lot of people who don't even get on that ladder let alone the people who do get on that ladder and find that it's actually it's it's a it's, it's a laugh anyway, because even with the uh, all the trappings that the white middle class or the white upper class males especially have, uh, you're still um, you've still got a fight on your hands because of all the other institutional issues around culture and racism and the way you talk and the way you look and your references, uh, which brings me back to what I said at the beginning that it's far more complex than just. And, and this is what I've referred to for years as the great educational lie. Do well at school and you'll get a good job. It's a lie. There is far more to it. I'm not saying don't do well at school, but there's far more to it. You look at uh, research, on again, on working class people. That There are increasing numbers of people from poorer backgrounds getting into university, but they don't stay, according to the research. And they don't see it through. Um, um, uh, and also, um, they're... Their, their salaries are still depressed over the entire course of their working life on average compared to those who aren't from even though they've got the same qualification and in theory the same opportunities which is the uh, the myth of the level playing field and just on that subject we did a um, a conference in manchester to help launch the book the working class with a, a a young people's charity called reclaim who were doing amazing work i think they still are doing amazing work in manchester i think in wales as well giving young people working class people a voice to make to make a change to their communities and a young girl talked very eloquently and 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 um, movingly. Uh, she wasn't emotional, but the audience was about getting to university to do a law degree. She was a young lady of colour from working class Manchester, and she got there. and, and Everybody would hold her up as a as a, just a brilliant example of this is what the education system. If you apply yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, this is what you can do. But she said, "I, I can't stay. I can't afford the books." So we get this system that that says, "Yes, you can be a star. Look at you. Aren't you amazing, black?" you know black girl from the from the poor end of manchester has got to university to study law and and she was struggling for those sorts of for those sorts of reasons and there's a whole section in the book on on shame the shame that people from working class backgrounds can feel in certain situations where their their difference or their lack is 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 highlighted um, and I went to Durham University and I was sort of, I don't know, lower middle class, but, but my, my lack and deficiency was certainly highlighted in amongst the, the, uh, the, the, the people who went to Durham University. And anyway, a lot of them only went to Durham because Oxford and Cambridge wouldn't let them in. Mm. Again, Phil, does that answer your question? It, no, it absolutely, again, and I said it previously, it absolutely does. And there's going to be a long intro to the next question, if that's okay, because, yeah. because one of the, the great things about doing this podcast is I get to speak to people like yourself who are so knowledgeable and so, you know, immersed in all of these different voices and different people in different situations. But, but I just want to tell you a little personal thing, if that's okay. So of course, yeah. Um, in, I was doing the podcast regularly. We're doing it every single week. And I was got on a bit of a treadmill with doing it because, you know, there was requirements to do it and I was doing various different books and, you know, most of the books that I was reading, I was quite enjoying, but I felt the pressure that, you know, I needed to keep this up. Now I've stepped away from doing it every week and I'm just doing it as and when, but the reason I mentioned this to you now is that I picked up your book because I wanted to read your book. And obviously I got straight in touch with you when I started reading the book and the reasons why I hopefully I'll go through the reasons why I particularly wanted to read it. And the reasons why I, you know, I've not been able to put it down since is because 
you know, I identify myself, and it, it sounds ridiculous to say, you know, as deputy head teacher in a school, that I identify myself from a working class background. But, you know, we may, may be able to pick up from the regional accent that it's, people may, may be able to agree with me on this front. So in terms of, you know, not to give listeners too much about my family history, but, you know, I am the child of a, a working class dad who grew up in a council house in Wigan from a long line of, you know, people who'd uh, probably been miners or, you know, just, you know, good, solid working people of Wigan and you know my nan believe this or not Ian and I'm, I'm 44 next week and my nan is still alive <laughs> she's 100 wow. she still lives in her in her own council house in Wigan so I've got that side of it mum's family may be slightly different but in terms of what you're talking about then you know I can identify with a lot of that stuff so you know in terms of you know university places and things like that um you know I can also identify with silly things at school where um I'm talking about working at school where we had a tannoy system, I said this on a podcast last year, where we would announce uh, open evenings or end of parents' evenings. I was never allowed to be the person that made the announcement because my regional accent wasn't the image that the school were looking for. And they would require somebody who was rather more uh, eloquent. Receive pronunciation. Receive pronunciation, absolutely, yeah, to do that. And, you know, it's just such a powerful book when you're talking about these kind of things. But, you know, my parents... And this is where the question is going to go eventually. I know the listeners are thinking, for goodness sake, get to a question. But, you know, my parents necessarily moved up um, in terms of, you know, where they lived perhaps and, and the occupations that they that they ended up with through the 80s. Um, but, you know, I still went to a very much, a, a, I'm going to say a bog standard comp. I might have to cut that. But it certainly was and managed to get reasonable qualifications. But the question is going to be that we hear a lot about powerful knowledge, knowledge-rich curriculum, and they're often, as you put in the book, fated as the route out of poverty for disadvantaged students. So should the purpose of education be to make everybody middle class? No. Um, some could be, and that's fine if that works for them. If that, if that sort of that ladder, getting to university, going off to be a doctor or, or an engineer or whatever, if, that, if that's what you want, then that's fine. But you do need to be reflecting as the student going through that. Is that, is that what you want? There's a very moving uh, chapter in the book from uh, Leah Stewart where she writes about having gone through that. She was the hardest working girl in school. She got all the grades. She got to university. She then went into the world of work and then realized a bit like maybe Phil, with, your, with your voice, it, 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 she didn't fit. Something in the background, in the in the blood, in the something didn't quite fit, and suddenly she realised she was getting overlooked for things, for opportunities, and she realised that that the ladder she'd climbed wasn't her ladder, and that actually doing something else, being something else, but going back home, spending more time with family, that actually was it was a far better choice for her, and and this idea that that somebody in her school, or the teachers in her school, will feel good that they've given this working class girl, you know, a, a, a hand up to work away up the ladder, but actually, she didn't want that. It wasn't. It, it was making her ill. It wasn't the right thing. So for some, yes, that's fine. You've also then got the issue around social mobility, and I thank um, real David Cameron who wrote in the book about, and um, Dr. Debbie Kidd talks about this as well. And I talked about the mental models. You know, social mobility. That's a good thing. There's no point to even discuss that. And he was pointing out, and the, the students from Reclaim, the charity in Manchester, the young people that were saying the same thing. Social mobility underneath that, when you interrogate that, and it's interesting that Gove took critical thinking out of the curriculum along with citizenship and the environment. And when you interrogate what we mean by social mobility, there's a subtext there which says where you live is crap. Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. The people you live with are crap. Your family's crap. You need to go somewhere better. You can do that. You can be better than all of them. And, and people like um, uh, David Cam, real David Cameron up in Scotland and Debbie Kidd and the reclaimed students are saying, I don't, I don't want to have to leave 
to have a better life? Why can't I have a better life here in Manchester or in a fishing village in Scotland or wherever I might be? And, and, it, and I hadn't thought about it because my mental model was social mobility. That's a good thing. That, that's what we need to be encouraging. But you need to, we need to be thinking more cleverly, more intelligently about what we mean by a school's success. But at the moment, because of this, again, this top-down command and control model where it's about the data, the school's success is the one, is the student with all the, the qualifications. And the successful school is the school with lots of students with lots of qualifications. But maybe, and I, you know, some of you might know me from my thunks and my provocations. You know, there's one I did a while back. You know, maybe the maybe the least successful school is the uh, maybe the, the school with the, the least amount of qualifications is the most successful in other ways. If we look at things, do we want students who have got all these grades but are actually mentally ill or drop out of university, or? And I talk about this in my book. Why do I need a teacher when I've got Google? The the, the students who are high flyers who go on to be uh, doctors and surgeons and but who have some very dubious moral decisions to make during wartime for example you know all the people who are who have stripped the country bare but you know were great members of the of the upper class education system got into banking and 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 thank you very much so just because you're getting these qualifications doesn't mean to say you have any sort of moral compass to go with it and so let's 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 work on that as well and then you look at um and you talked about knowledge rich. Whose knowledge? Who decides this is the important? Because somebody is. Somebody's making that decision. Somebody's making a call that says this poem is more important than your poem. And now your poem might be from your culture or from your country or from your background or from your, your history. But this poem is more important than your poem. In fact, your poem's not important at all. Therefore, we're not going to cover it. So underneath all of these decisions about knowledge and knowledge rich, and of course, Knowledge is important, but that's just a tip of a of a very big iceberg when it comes to helping children be be happy, be healthy, be uh, happy in themselves, be be a, a contributing part of their community, be happy with their culture, and 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 not and not ashamed. So underneath, it's easy to get lost in the knowledge and skills spurious debate, which isn't really a debate anyway. But maybe that's just a smokescreen for understanding actually whose knowledge are we talking about? Who's making the decisions about what's important? I read a book, um, uh, Empire Lands, recently, um, uh, uh, and increasingly looking at the work around inclusion and diversity. Um, and this idea that the that the curriculum, the history curriculum, it's sort of it's Tudors and then it leaps to. Uh, well, you got yeah, you got you know, you got the Romans, then you got the Tudors, and then perhaps you know it might leap to the Victorians if you're lucky. What about all the other stuff? Not out of shame, not out of uh, aren't we a bad country, but let's have the conversation. Let's have the debate. Let's talk about the empire. Let's talk about what happened in India and New Zealand and South Africa. Let's have children. Are, children aren't stupid. Even the thick kids in school aren't stupid. Let's have these conversations in order to be able to have fully understand not only what makes Great Britain, what makes Great Britain, but also if you're a person whose ethnicity wasn't in the country 100 years ago or 10 years ago or 200 years ago where am i from where 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 how have i become what i've become not in a not in an accusatory way necessarily but in a way of just valuing every person that comes through the door and this idea and it's in the book again this idea about culture that children are valued for what they bring not what they discard coming into the classroom is so important and there is research from i think it's from the netherlands that, that, and Gove talked about what well, we want a colorblind education system that doesn't see color, doesn't see difference. The research shows the complete opposite. 
if you don't if you're not seen for being different if you're not seen for bringing something special and unique to a, to a classroom situation then you're invisible because you're not going to blend in because you're a different color or you speak a different language or you've got different frames of reference so you're not going to you, you're not going to you're just going to either disappear or kick off they're the two choices so let's value difference let's value diversity um, uh, and, and let's be proud of of the background of every single person coming through that door even if that background or maybe especially if that background is working class worked in a mine as you describe your your family have got an accent that is that is regional and not rp and at least and i mentioned this in the book you know radio 4 at least is beginning to realize that maybe regional accents are uh, are valid and are important uh, not just everybody has to sound like the queen all the time so yeah whose whose knowledge let's un, let's again let's just be intelligent let's ask the right sorts of questions let's have a proper open debate let's value every single person and and um uh bista uh i love as a as an education academic um and i know again a controversial figure based on the twitter division around his work um uh, but jarlath o'brien um whose brilliant book don't send him in today or don't send him in, send him in, t- in tomorrow which talks again about we don't want these kids in tomorrow because they're going to make us look bad with ofsted or in the exams um it pointed me to a bista quote where along the lines of if we have an education system that needs to exclude children for it to work it isn't an education system no no and i mean again so much there that you know this is something that we hear quite regularly you know if you can get an education and get yourself out of blackpool well why would you want to get out of blackpool because it's a great place you know i actively want to be in blackpool and that's why i am um and also i mean i've been lucky Ian, to speak to you know um i've spoken to professor michael young regarding you know powerful knowledge and, and kind of his views around powerful knowledge and and then i spoke recently to guy claxton on his book uh, the future of teaching where he was kind of questioning and slightly disagreeing with michael young in the sense that yes you can see the benefits of powerful knowledge because it's helped him to you know to move uh, socially uh, through the to the levels and he's now at a, you know at an elevated um, level in life but not necessarily for everybody and but what michael young did say to me and is that you know social mobility is okay but somebody has to move down for somebody to move up and we're not seeing any evidence that that that's happening as more at all so he may be talking and, about and social research, justice and there's research in the book as well for sorry to interrupt that says that those who do move up socially and even the whole idea of up or down again yeah. let's interrogate the language let's interrogate the mental yeah, models yeah, up yeah. is good down is bad mm-hmm. maybe it's side to side let's 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 try and change that but yes yeah, so beware of the language that we use but even those who do move uh, air quotes up um and this idea that oh yes they they will help others the research tends to show that they they tend to pull the ladder up or they can pull the ladder up uh, partly as a result of not wanting to be associated with amongst their new peers with their previous peers so this idea that, that one person working the way up the ladder is going to open the floodgates for everybody else, the research would would, would contradict that anyway. And, and there's always a few who make it. Um, and then they're held up as a great example. There's an example I give when I'm doing presentations on this to teachers um, and, and head teachers um, from uh, the chef Gordon Ramsay. There was a program, um, I think it was called, it's like Born Rich, um, where working class successes like Gordon Ramsay, their offspring, and I think one of the Spice Girls was involved in this as well, go back to where they were brought up in the working in their working class environment and have to spend a week living the way that their parent did, even though 
because of the successes of the parent, they were living in a posh LA pad or whatever it might be. And, and Gordon Ramsay's son um, was in this uh, council estate in, I say council estate, they probably all sold under Thatcher. Your nan's good to have hung on to hers. Yeah. Um, was in a, I think it's one of the few, in, to be honest, that are still, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worth a lot now. Yeah. Um, was in an estate, shall we say, in Oxford. And, and this lad was trying to come to terms with the levels of poverty and neglect, not only uh, sort of in that community, but foisted upon it from, uh, um, you know, 10 years of austerity and all the cuts. And and so he would like try and go to the, the, the youth club where Gordon Ramsay had gone as a child and it no longer existed. And, and you know, the college that Gordon Ramsay went to when he started his foot on the ladder to do catering and um, there were no buses. And, uh, and then the, the, the sofa surfing because there wasn't the support networks within the community that existed when Gordon Ramsay was there and just how, and, and all living on the streets. Um, and then, and issues around drugs and alcohol that, that, that weren't as prevalent when Gordon Ramsay was growing up. And his son went to him, went back into Gordon Ramsay's LA pad to say, look, dad, you know, in the, in the debrief. And, and, and he said, I, you, you wouldn't have done it now. And Gordon Ramsay hadn't, refused to accept that and again this uh, it's probably the first time we're 39 minutes in and i'm using the term neoliberal for the first time i think but this neoliberal model of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps if you can i can all you need is hard work and dedication and commitment and and you can do it and and that was the the, the mental model that gordon ramsay had and he refused to accept that the structures the external structures that had supported him to get that mindset, to get that first foot on the ladder, to get out of Oxford and do what he did, were no longer in place. And not only were they no longer in place, other things that had taken their place were far more insidious and destructive anyway. So, so you know, what, what's the quote? I think it's an American quote. And how can you pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any any boots? Mm. So this model of you're just not working hard enough and, and it's a level playing field. And I think I start the book with this level playing field, my ass. It, this idea, and I think I quote Toby Young in it, you know, we give everybody the same opportunities, therefore it's a level playing field. By the time children are four, it's no longer a level playing, a level playing field. By the, when they're born, it's not a level, in the womb, it's not a level playing field. If you look at things around pollution, you look at things around the diet linked to, um, linked to the mother, linked to the mother before conception. There is research that shows that the income of the grandparents, statistically speaking, will have an impact on the uh, ongoing lifetime income of the, of the individual person. There are so many other aspects um, uh, that we need to take into consideration when understanding the how to best support a young person from a poorer background, as opposed to we'll just give them the same opportunities as everybody else, and some will rise and some will fall, and that's that's Darwinism for you. Um, it, uh, uh, it's it's a false. There's a false logic there. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of just moving into a slightly different tack, so yes. you know, something we're going to talk about later on is music in. And obviously, you know, I mentioned the podcast quite passionate about music, but you talk about what working class culture maybe is now. And perhaps, you know, music was a large part of, of not necessarily saying that, uh, you know, everybody thinks that, but football, music was certainly part of, of culture for me growing up. So what is a working class culture in 2021? And is it still a recognized culture? I mean, it's an interesting one. The The introduction of the book is by um, an independent thinking associate called Dave Harris, who's a former head teacher, worked in some challenging schools uh, all around the country. And he, he refused to even countenance the idea of a book called The Working Class. 
he just refused to accept the premise of the question as far as he was concerned there is no such thing as a working class um, and this is a guy who was the first person to go to university whose parents uh, were sort of you know working class themselves so what what I asked him to do in true independent thinking style was well okay will you write for the book a forward, an introduction that says why you're not going to write for the book called The Working Class. So he out, uh, outlines it quite carefully in that book, this whole nature about we need to, in, again, interrogate the mental models about what do we mean by working class? And it's far more complex and far, far richer than that. With regard to culture, and, and one of the starting points for the book is the work of Phil Beadle, who I'm sure many of you will will, will know another associate and a friend from from way back. And Phil is still still doing it, still working in some of the hardest classrooms in the country, whether that's uh, short term contracts um, or, or longer term contracts. Um, he's the sort of guy who'll get up at three o'clock in the morning to get a taxi, to get a train, to get to a school in order to teach English and then get, get stay in a travel lodge for three days and then go home again. So totally committed to what he's doing. And I read his the introduction of his book, um, How to Teach Literacy, and a whole How to Teach series. Um, and it, it, it's one of the few pieces of, of educational work that, that did literally move me to tears. It's such a powerful insight into, and he's sort of a London Irish working class background, the impact that a good teacher can have when the teacher says to him when he's reading The Sun, uh, when Phil's a student reading The Sun, uh, why don't you try reading something else? And, and Phil reads his copy of The Guardian the following day says, um, it's a bit different, sir, isn't it? You know, maybe the people who write The Sun want us to be stupid. You know, he says, yeah, yeah, shall I bring The Guardian in for you again tomorrow? Yes, I think I shall. So so suddenly there's how one teacher can make that sort of difference to a guy like Phil. And, the, and Phil is not somebody who has left his working class roots. He's still living in London. He's still... He's still living the dream, if you like, and incredibly proudly as, uh, um, uh, as, as well. And his the chapter that he wrote for the book about working class culture, about going to the seaside, mm-hmm. about about music, about going to the pub, about the banter, about football, is incredibly powerful and says far more than I could about an understanding of working class culture that values it, even though you don't necessarily agree with it or 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 want to be part of it. But it is still incredibly strong and and vivid. And again, one of the things that came through from the book and in other conversations around the Thatcher years is this this death of community, how community held people together. And and for me, and it sounds a little bit trite, but go as a, as a really basic understanding, go and watch um, Billy Elliot, the musical, in terms of just understanding how community stands for each other it doesn't mean to say everybody's the same it's not communism it's it's one for all and all for one you you can still stand out you can still shine but there is behind that there is that sense of community and peeping and people helping each other out and the the film pride um sort of but i know these are films they're not real life but but they're based on well certainly pride is based on real life it gives you that as somebody from a say for a lower middle class background sort of looking in it gives it gives something to to sort of help me understand what to look for when it comes to things like community and go beyond just looking at poverty or or, or families that are that, that that aren't sort of hanging together properly or and, and look beyond blame and well they can afford flat screen televisions and cigarettes so why can't they feed their children so I don't again I'm not sure whether that answers your question but it, 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 what I said about culture and and in the book um, I keep revisiting as almost like a narrator going through the book, the words of the school children of Babiana, which is a book written in 1968 or 67, children from a working class rural background 
um, in a school in northern Italy um, who, through the help of their teacher, a preacher, um, they were able to put into words to explain to their, their hypothetical teacher, although their real teacher as well, what it's like to be from a working class background and how their cultures are, are ignored. But they, they have as much to bring as anybody when it comes to the classroom and how the impact of the, the nature of education and the things the teacher did had such an impact on them in a way. For example, um, they talk about how you can beat me with a whip. That's fine. You can hit me because those bruises will go, but your red pen, the pen that you mark, where you mark so-and-so's score in the book, they're the things that do far more damage. They're the things that stay. They're the things that will really link forever, will be you know, embedded into the, this damage will be embedded in that person, not, not the whip. And it was interesting. I, I had a conversation with a taxi driver and and even though, and I think this was before I'd read that book, and he said exactly the same thing. We were talking about his education, coming you know um, going to school in uh, in in the doc, in Docklands in London before it was posh, and um, he said, you know, I didn't mind the beatings, but it was the, the the red pen. That's what used to get me. So understanding that the culture at that sort of level, and understanding it and valuing it and understanding the impact that you have for all the right reasons, you you don't want to do damage, but but maybe you are. So let's. Let's work with people enough to be able to hear hear their voices and, and 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 value what they bring to the classroom. Definitely, and in terms of what Phil has brought, so um, you know, obviously, I listen to Teacher Hug Radio with with Paul, and Paul does his breakfast show on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock, and Phil's quite often uh, a correspondent that comes on and, and adds bits in, and he does talk about exactly what you said, Ian, there about his journey to work across town on the bus and all the experiences that he talks about, and he's very much still living that day in day out and it's a fascinating listen it really is yeah definitely okay so you've mentioned a few times about poverty and how you you know talk about it as being a neurological issue so can you explain for the listener a little bit more about how that is and what more importantly is the impact of this issue the again the statistics and the research is is in the book so have a look at that but it there is a lot of evidence that children from poorer backgrounds their brains are have developed in different ways are less developed and when I say less developed I'm talking about in terms of the connections that are made um, than brains of children who are not from those sorts of backgrounds there is research about language and I don't mean the 10 million words or whatever that that thing was because that's there are flaws in that but there's a whole chapter in in the working class book about language if the, the more language that you have access to the the richer your brain becomes in terms of the connections it makes the richer your brains becomes the more language you've got the more you can learn the more you can describe your situation the more you can expand your situation um uh as a quote from his name escapes me philosopher this is words along the lines of that the limits of my language are the limits of my world somebody will shout at the at their speaker who said that german philosopher um Wittgenstein, I think, the limits of my language are the limits of my word. So, so by having limited language, it impacts on the brain. That limited language then impacts on what we're able to learn. It impacts our ability to sort of I- I- expand beyond the language that we've got. Um, so, as soon as then we start having conversations about the the level playing field, it, it's ignoring the neurological differences. I'm not saying deficit, but the neurological differences that are there. And what I'm saying is that we 
we ask the question of ourselves as educators and i'm and i'm really pleased that early years is finally finding its 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 time in the sun they've always in their world they've always been in the sun and rightly so but i'm seeing increasingly like through independent thinking increasing requests uh, um, for you know for early year support and the great work of people like Ruth Swales and Dr Stella Lewis in this area about how if we get those early years right not by testing them not by seeing if they hold a pen not by making them school ready but understanding where they are through observation and working to 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 see where they are and help them move on from them. if we get that right then we can do all sorts of things which is different from everybody's the same therefore we're going to work out who's ahead in the game and who's behind in the game and 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 then the things that we do will 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 keep them that way. And I, I mean, I talked about you know pollution, and it's interesting that the the um, I think it's the BMA are finally in England are finally realising that they need to look at pollution in terms of child poverty, child mortality. But we know that pollution, things like lead in the atmosphere, pollution from cars, impacts neurolog the, neuro the 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 development of the of the brain both in the womb and in the early years. So we know these sorts of things are there. So what can we do as educators, as knowledgeable, thoughtful educators, by understanding that in order to use the brain's amazing plasticity to be able to address those 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 differences, to accelerate um, the, the the difference, to accelerate those brain connections, to give that richness of experience that maybe they maybe they had missed out for whatever reason. And there are a lot of people from wealthy backgrounds with a poverty of experience as well. Having spent time in Hong Kong and Dubai, you know, there are a lot of kids who, who don't get to see their family, but get spend a lot of time with the with the helper, with the maid on their PlayStations. Um, so what can we do to, to address those sorts of uh, uh, those sorts of differences at a neurological level? And there's a lovely quote from Dr. Andrew Curran I mentioned before. He says, you can't be older than your brain. So if for whatever reason you've got a seven-year-old who has, let's say, the emotional maturity of a five-year-old, they're a five-year-old. Work with them as a five-year-old to help them catch up and accelerate. And we know the brain can do th that research from King's College from years ago, cognitive acceleration through science education. We know the brain will catch up on the whole without serious damage. Um, so, but, so what are we doing to work with them as the, as the, as the five-year-old, not the deficient seven-year-old, where they then constantly carry those deficiencies with them throughout their school career and, and on beyond their school career. And, and then you meet these people as adults, you know, I'm, I'm thick. Well, why'd you say that? Well, I didn't do very well at school. Well, why, well I failed my 11 plus. Uh, and there's a whole series section in the book for those teachers uh, in in England about grammar schools and selection and and the pernicious effect it had. It saved some, but the effect it had on 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 others. I was speaking to a lady, an author, who who is uh, con whose constituency, uh, her MP is somebody uh, well known to um, people who look at English education and the DfE. And she was saying the only glimmer of, of anything she got when she had a, one of her conversations with him was, was when she described to him having to catch the bus in the uniform of the thick kids' school uh, amongst all the kids who were going to the local grammar school and the impact that that, that that had on her. And it's worth pointing out, as I do in the book, as I do in the working uh, my um, Google book, Why Do I Need a Teacher When I've Got Google, that the whole 11 plus grew out of the Spens report, uh, which was researched by a guy called Cyril Burt, whose later research was discredited, saying that you can work out roundabout by the age of 11 whether a child's clever or not. Um, and Cyril Burt was a eugenicist 
uh, eugenics is still alive and well. It's called the Galton Society now. But you look at some of the stuff on Twitter, look at the stuff coming out of Dominic Cummings when he was in um, DFE and then number 10. Um, this eugenicist approach to you, either born clever or stupid or it's, it's racial, um, is still there. It might have been buried because it's, it, it hasn't got a great press. But it, again, look at your knowledge-rich curriculum. Look at who's rising to the top. Look at who is allowing people to rise to the top. Uh, look at the extent to which those sorts of uh, um, conversations and beliefs are still sort of taking place around. The, and the 11 plus grows, grows right out of the heart of, of eugenics. Mm. And just for listeners who were shouting at the radio or the podcast, of course your quote was correct. Uh, I'm not going to do the listener a disservice and pretend that I knew that, but I did, of course, Google it. Um, <laughs> oh, very good. Which was ironic in terms of the books we've been discussing, but yeah, I, did, yeah. uh, I did just check that out. So that was, of course, correct, and I didn't doubt it for a second. Very good. Thank you. Right. So and uh, this is one question that really comes to the heart of recent podcasts that I've been having. And I mentioned the conversation with, with Guy Claxton around his latest book, and I really enjoyed that one. And I don't know if you've had a chance to, to read that not yet but i heard good things yeah and and again you know you talk about social media and how it's maybe divided opinion and obviously everyone's entitled to that opinion but yep. what this next question is going to be is around what he was talking about and he's trying to bring some nuance some pragmatism some kind of experience and and some evidence as well but a different kind of evidence and there does seem to be at the moment only one particular type of evidence that you can uh, you can use and you can't necessarily use others however what he was talking about is similar to what you're saying in the, in some of the, the sections of the book. Is it time to stop this oversimplification of education? And I mentioned in a talk at the weekend about this kind of binariness to, you know, this behavior approach is good, this is bad. You know, knowledge rich is the best way to do things. A more progressive approach perhaps isn't necessarily seen to be the right way to go. So is it time to stop that oversimplification of education and realize that it's much more complicated than anyone says it is? Absolutely. And, and it's not complicated, it's complex. Mm. And it's understanding the complexity that, that, that we've got these, what's called a complex adaptive systems, your classroom, anybody's classroom is a complex adaptive system where everything is interacting with everything else. And when you overlay a complex adaptive system thinking over the top of the research that says, if you do this, this will happen, you realize that, that you can't make predictions about what will happen. You can say this might happen. You, can't, you can say what worked and this is where, again, I like the word of, uh, work of uh, Bister on this. You, can't, you can say what worked, but you can't categorically say this will work. And even just, uh, you know, as a teacher, I know that the thing that I did with that year nine class on Tuesday morning didn't then work on Thursday afternoon, even though it was the same class, even though I was the same teacher, even though it's the same room, because there are so many other things going on that will impact on, on the human beings in the classroom, the weather, the time of day, the how lunchtime was, how the, what, how the football went, how the football's going to go. There's so much going on. So everything is interacting with everything else all of the time. So complexity, if we, if we start with, um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of fantastic, lovely work around complexity in education and in teaching and learning, which I recommend. We, Independent Thinking did a session a while back with um, one of our own sort of internal CPD things. We had a, um, a guy from university talking about complexity, Dr. Phil Wood. Um, we had um, a couple of our guys, uh, like David Keeling, the stand-up comics, so improv. Um, we had jazz musicians, improvised jazz musicians, and as well as teachers. And we were looking at the overlaps and the understandings between improvised jazz, improvised comedy, and teaching and learning, from a and, and and complexity from a complexity theory point of view, and it's just it's 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 mind-boggling, but it's so wonderful 
you know, the, 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 the jazz musician, the mistake isn't that everybody put your instruments down and, and have a go at them and kick them out and, and shame them on Twitter. It's you use the mistake to create something you, that wouldn't have happened before. And that's okay. And improvise, the, the golden rule of improvised comedy is use everything. No matter what happens, take it, use it, bend it, play around with it, make a joke out of it, throw it back again, as opposed to what you're doing is, is, is wrong and disrupting my lesson plan. Therefore, I'm going to shut you down or kick you, kick you out or whatever it might be. But, and it's, it's fun. It's what makes teaching such an enjoyable process, because if it's just teaching from a script and they're not allowed to interrupt, we're only one step away from robots in the classroom. And we, are, we aren't that many steps away from robots in the classroom, but we're more than one step away. Um, but we're only, only one step away if, if we resort to delivering from scripts. But as soon as we understand that complexity and the humanity and the, the richness that can enhance our jobs as teachers by looking at learning in this sort of way and taking it away from research says we must, which I've always said is, is a part of the deprofessionalization of the teaching profession. You can't think for yourself. You're not good enough to think for yourself. These are the people who are going to think for you, do what they say. That's not what I came into teaching for. And that's what I, I know a lot of teachers didn't come into teaching for. So, and, and teaching children about complexity, uh, just as an example, and, and this would be a good one for Howell Roberts or Deborah Kidd to do with their um, Mantle of the Expert work. So you've got the, in Colombia, you've got the peace process going on. And finally, they've managed to achieve some level of peace after decades of violence and people living in the, in the, in the, in the forests and, and, and the murders and all sorts of things. So they finally achieved a certain level of peace, which means people have put in their guns down uh, what is it? Um, you know, swords to plowshares, and taken up farming, which means that the Amazon rainforest or the rainforest there is being depleted. So for me, that's complexity. Let's you have these things that you didn't know it was going to happen, but it does because everything is linked to everything else. So let's let's look at that. Let's look. Let's do a mantle of the expert where we're you know the FARC leaders speaking to the government, speaking to the United Nations, and then and then having a discussion about what might happen next. And it's 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 incredibly. Um, uh, intellectually stimulating and rich and enjoyable and entertaining almost to think in terms of this level of complexity rather than in terms of it's right, it's wrong, this is good, this is bad. But again, back to mental models where we started. This is this is how it started, this idea that, that, that we'll just have simple mental models that we can turn into headlines that say you're good, you're bad. And that's how Hollywood works and that's how Twitter works as well with its limited amount of... Of, uh, of of characters and it plays into certain narratives as well that you can you can create a, a posse can't you you can if you've got the ego big enough you can have a lot of followers by uh, what I call standing on the necks of giants mm. but we know and and um, Guy Claxton knows that you build on the things that might not have been right but you take them you build on it you acknowledge them you grow that's how science works um, not you were wrong you thought whatever therefore aren't you a bad person we won't listen to you we'll dismiss you and there are a lot of people they need to dismiss, like Claxton, like Paolo Freire. There are a lot of people that have needed to be dismissed in order to move the current agenda forward. And let's let's have a more nuanced, complex conversation that puts children at the heart of the of the educational project. Definitely, and and this book is absolutely in that category. And you mentioned about intellectually stimulating, and you know you can read this book in sections, you can read this book in chapters, you can read this book in parts. You can keep coming back to it as I've been doing as well. But whichever parts you do pick up, listener, and I do suggest strongly that you go immediately following listening to this and go and buy the book if you haven't got it already. You know you, you're going to be intellectually stimulated, and you're going to go off down other avenues as well in terms of following up on the research and evidence base behind a lot of these chapters. So. 
We will get into the last question, if that's all right, Ian, now. And then yeah. Can I just say on the book, it's an expensive book. It's a big book. Uh, if you go to Independent Thinking Press website and use the code ITL20, you get 20% off, which might help. I wish I'd known that before I'd bought it on uh, on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, worth... your own fault. I uh, know, that's true. Yes, it's worth it and more, let me tell you. So uh, Thank yeah, you. I'll do that in future. Okay, that's the last question before we do step into the vinyl suite, and I am looking forward to that. Um, so you've said about that there is another way. So what do you think is the post-pandemic future for the working class and particularly in education? Let's value them <laughs> let's pay them what they're worth we we've we saw the people are being clapped yes there were there were there were doctors there were that echelon if you like of people being clapped but what were being clapped who kept us together who kept us healthy who kept us fed who kept us moving around were the people from the poorer backgrounds were the drivers were the cleaners were the nurses were the social workers were that they were that level of people they were the people emptying the bins that's what kept our society together this um a dutch writer um his name might come back to me my brain sometimes works 10 seconds behind as you can tell um there's a dutch writer who was uh, i was tweeting him a year ago saying we we need to pay the bin men what we're paying the bankers and showing the research that showed, you know, like I think it was from uh, Dublin. I think the bankers went on strike and nobody noticed. The the, uh, the bin men went on strike and, and they got their, their needs addressed within about three days, I think, because of the rubbish piling up. Let's re-evaluate what we consider to be important, who we consider to be important, the roles we consider to be important. And the pandemic is a, has been a vital time to realize that the the you know the, the bankers and the i don't know the the games developers and all of that so yeah okay there's a place for them but there are some other people who actually kept us going kept us alive kept us moving kept us fed and we need to we need to value them so let's and i i, I suppose i keep coming back to this term value let's understand let's value let's be inclusive let's give everybody a chance to feel good and feel part and have their and 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 be an active valued part of society rather than rather than anything other than that. Nailers, Natter, just talking to teachers. Absolutely. Okay, so as we mentioned, we are going to... Reckman. Step... Reckman was the Dutch guy. <laughs> oh, there you go, you see, again. <laughs> fantastic. And no sign of Google either, so that's brilliant. It's there. It's yeah. all there, lodged in the brain. Okay, so like I said, we're going to step into the, the vinyl suite. And the, the reason for this, Ian, and uh, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of the podcasts before, you don't have to say you have, but we okay. want to get a little bit more information about the guest because obviously, I mean, you've given a lot today, but quite often we talk within the narrow parameters of the book that we're discussing or the particular interest of the person. And you do get a different side, a different view of the person when you delve into their back catalogue. And the reason for this and the reason it's called a vinyl suite is, and, and I say this every week, so sorry, listener, that I'm going to explain it again, but at uh, our school, we have um, the office that I share with my colleague in the behavior area. Uh, we have a functioning record player complete with speakers and a full uh, vinyl collection. Obviously, we do do some working occasionally as well. Um, That's work. That's good. I like that. <laughs> That's good. Um, we've actually moved to a new and improved vinyl suite in the last week or so, but um, we do have music on, and it's often, you know, um, perplexing and stimulating for students who come down and go, what on earth is that, and how is that making a noise? Um, so that's why it's called the vinyl suite. So would you be able to share with listeners a story about a particular piece of music that has either influenced you or had a, a kind of bearing on your career? And then if you can introduce it at the end of explaining what it is, I can seamlessly edit it in. Uh, I say seamlessly, you know, the only negative reviews I've ever had on Apple is because um, apparently my editing skills aren't up to much. So I'm not quite George <laughs> Martin and I neither should have 
be. I'm a teacher. I'm not an audio engineer, but I will try and seamlessly uh, fade it in. Okay. All right. Well, let me let me let me give you four things, and then I'll, uh, the, the fourth of which will be me leading into this particular song. And I did have to go through my uh, my my me list on Spotify to work out which which one this would be because it music has been such an important part of of my life in so many ways, um, which is worth another. Uh, and I'd love to come to your school and uh, work my way through your vinyl suite. And I've got an image in my head of Blinded by the Light, the film about Bruce Springsteen. It's very much and the guys like from Luton. Yeah. I've got that in my head, uh, which is which is a good thing. Um, my least favorite bit of music, and this gives you an insight into my mindset is uh, Human League, Don't You Want Me Baby. And I just hate it. And on my playlist, on my favourites list on Spotify, it's on there because when it comes on, I get such a buzz from switching it off just before they start singing. So to, as an insight into the Ian Gilbert mindset, that's part of it. The piece of music that I love the most, I will listen to maybe once every three years which because I don't want to spoil it, I don't want to break it. Which is Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis, Tom, uh, on a theme by Thomas Tallis by um, Ray, Ray Fawn Williams, which is just the most sublime bit of music. But I can only watch that on a sunny day, looking at the English countryside or Welsh countryside, if I'm at home. So there's that's the sort of the, the the top and tail of it, if you like. I've got a, a, a list on my Spotify playlist of my three favourite songs. Um, uh, two of them are there. Third, the, the, I've got a gap because I don't know what my third favourite song is yet. I'll tell you that sort of in a few decades' time. Um, in terms of professionally, this is where I had to think: what, what, what drove me? Bearing in mind that the, the sort of the, the two lives that I've led in the early years of independent thinking, and then remarrying and going to Chile and having this sort of re-understanding of the nature of society, and then I realised there was one song that that sort of reached across both of those and it's by Hugh and Cry who I believe to be a Scottish duet from the when would this be um, 80s um, uh, and I haven't heard much from them since they're probably still going and maybe they'll have a listen and and, and, and and all will be well but I was shopping in Newcastle when I used to live there in uh, H&M in, um, on one of the main shopping streets and this song was in the background I had to stop and this was before way before um, the, the likes of Shazam you know where you had to actually stop people and ask them what's that playing and this girl went to find out and she said, it's Truth by a group called Hue and Cry. So I went and bought the cassette, Seduced and Abandoned is the cassette. And uh, there's some great tracks on it. Um, but the track Truth is the best track, the standout track, and it still is. And I realize it, Truth is, is fundamental to the work that I'm trying to do around education. Truth is the opposite of love um, in terms of relationships get into the truth of the matter, philosophy, understanding how things really are is right at the heart of this work. Understanding, you know, when I talk about um, you know, the knowledge and whose knowledge is it, let's get to the, what is the, what is true knowledge? What is what is my truth? Let's find my truth, not the truth you're going to give me. And when you look at the, the lyrics to this song, um, and a lot of it was written around... Um, um, sort of Irangate, and, and, and I definitely won't be able to remember. Yes, I can. Colonel North, the American general, standing there in his in his uniform in court, saying, "I only, I only speak the truth," and and it was it was around that sort of time, and they were saying, "And I'll fill your ears with noises, the things you want to know." So you've, I'll I'll tell you the truth that you want to hear, and then I've and then I've got you, I've got you on my side, and you can trust me because my truth is your truth, and um, uh, put your trust in me, and I won't let you down. 
So Truth by Hue and Cry is probably the, the, the number one song that goes throughout my my life and my career. I'll give you truth for occasion Give you truth to keep your soul calm Truth to hold the shadows back And truth to save your heart I'll give you truth when times are hurting Give you truth Brilliant. And uh, there we had Hue and Cry with Truth from uh, Labours of Love, the best of, and of course the album that you mentioned as well, Ian. So that's fantastic. And that this is why we do this on the podcast. And also, you, d- you don't realise it, but you've just given us a new section, Ian, as well. So not only are we going to do the one piece of music that's influenced me, we're also going to do the most hated song and potentially um, a top three. We, d- we did used to do a version of the top three, but my music licence only extends to a certain number of songs. So I'm trying to sort of uh, fill them out across a year so I don't have to pay for the premium subscription. But <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us tonight. And like I said, that the book is an astonishing piece of work. You know, you mentioned about the price, but I mean, it's it's well worth it and more. Like I said, for the the range and diversity of voices you've got, and the, you know, the amount of research that's gone into that, and the, all the different articles and the different people that are there. So I'm sure that people are you know on your website as we speak at the moment. So would you be able okay. to tell us a little bit more about where that website is, uh, where your social media feeds are, any events that you've got coming up, maybe signpost us to a couple more of your books um, that you've published yeah. recently as well. And we'll put links on the show notes to all of these, of course. That's great. Okay. And sorry if you heard some cheering in the background. I'm speaking to you tonight from Rotterdam, and the Euros are on, and the Netherlands clearly have just scored. So uh, those of you who want to know, it's 1-0. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. I, a a timestamping for this podcast as well. Oh, this there we go. Yeah, you, were, you, you live, heard it first. Live you from Rotterdam. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so the in, Independent Thinking is my organization, independentthinking.co.uk. You'll find more about me, about all the associates. Uh, we've got the resources page on there, which is full of videos and webinars and blogs and references to the books. And there's all sorts of bits and pieces on there. Uh, thunks, bits and pieces on there as well. And also then links to the books. The books, um, Independent Thinking Press is an imprint of Crown House Publishers. We've got good friends over there in Wales. Um, so their web or, or the website for our books is Independent Thinking press dot i think it's dot com that one um and like i say any of our independent thinking press books itl 20 um and that includes things like the working class but it also includes uh, things like the independent thinking series that we've got out mark finnis's book on restorative practices under independent thinking on restorative practice so that's there the paul dix books uh, they're there with itl 20 as well i'm really proud proud to have um, been involved in helping those get published get out there and um and the dave whittaker we talked about dave earlier his kindness principle which came out um may i think that was so there's lots on there all of them itl 20 and you get the discount plus free p and p um the th- in terms of signposting other books i suppose the um two significant books would be the independent thinking on loss which started off as a little book of bereavement written by me and my three kids when they lost their mum, which would have been 13 years ago, uh, a few days ago. And it, it's just a book that schools I know have found useful in understanding how best to deal with the immediate impact of that sort of news hitting the school, how best to support the children. And my kids were prime, oh, sorry, were yeah, primary, secondary and college. So there's, there's a sort of a range of ideas and thoughts there to support children going through bereavement, both short term and then longer term as well. We updated it a couple of years ago where my kids are now. 
so that area is of interest to me and it needs to be of interest to you if you're a teacher you will deal with the bereaved kid if not yet soon because statistically speaking it happens and the, the better you deal with it and support uh the, the the family the better that child will go on to, to to do academically and beyond and also um i would point you out on a totally different note thunks the little book of thunks or the tin of thunks we even put a load on a tin that seems to be the one that sort of most people associate with my name in terms of my output um, and again, ITL20, you can get the discount for that. Thunks are these little questions that just get children's brains hurting. They grew out of my work around philosophy for children. So questions like, is it right to bully a bully? Is a pregnant woman two people, not one? Uh, can you touch the wind? Is there more history than past? Is there more history than future? So is there more past than future? Um, is a broken down car park? They're all questions that get children thinking and talking and arguing in a positive way and and understanding the complexity of life. So that that's where I'd point you. Brilliant. Thank you again. So uh, just for listeners who are listening to this, maybe for the first time you've got onto the podcast and we've got podcasts with Paul Dix um, about his books. We've also spoken to Mark Finnis about his restorative practice and we've spoken to Dave Whitaker as well. So you can get links to those on the show notes. Ian, thank you so much for speaking to us tonight. And just before we go, a quick reminder that the book is The Working Class, Poverty, Education and Alternative Voices. And we've mentioned if you go on to uh, the, the website, Ian's website, then we can get a 20% discount with the code ITL20. Ian, thank you so much for for your time tonight really really appreciate it, particularly in the middle of the euros as well really appreciate it <laughs> i shall go and i shall go and see how they're getting on Absolutely. thank you ever so much been great to be great to talk to you phil thank you thank you miller's netter just talking to teachers talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at pna 1977 on twitter miller's netter just talking to teachers 